This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. I think a lot of people are on vacation, and this university of which we are affiliated as part of KDVS is on vacation. But Mr. McMillan and I, in fact, are not on vacation. We're still here. Because we know, dear listener, that you, to some degree, count on us to bring you the same programming that we have for the past nine years. And it's hard to believe that it's been nine years. Which does mean that next year we're going to have to have a 10th anniversary. Actually, I did the math, and our 500th program will be coming to you sometime in January. I think we'll try and celebrate that one. Segment one, we like to begin with On This Date in History. So we'll do that. The date in question today is the 14th of July. It was on July 14th in the year 1099, during the First Crusade, the Christian knights from Europe captured Jerusalem after seven weeks of siege and began massacring the city's Muslim and Jewish population. To their credit, when the Muslim armies of Saladin later took Jerusalem, they tolerated no such reciprocal massacres. On July 14th in 1798, Congress passed the Sedition Act, which made it a crime to publish scandalous, false, or malicious writings about the U.S. government. That uh, very unpopular law got uh, circumvented by our First Amendment rights. And although it may have sounded good to Congress uh, to punish scandalous, false, or malicious writings about the government, who gets to decide what's scandalous and false and malicious as opposed to the truth. We've discovered here in Radio Parallax that sometimes the truth can also be scandalous and malicious. It was on July 14th in 1938, and this has a bit of a tie-in to our previous chat with legendary film actor Norman Lloyd. His pal, the English director Alfred Hitchcock, signed with David O. Selznick to direct movies in Hollywood. Hitch had made quite a splash over in Britain, and kept his record going here in the U.S. of A. His first American film, Rebecca, starring Laurence Olivier and Joan Fontaine, was released in 1940 and promptly won the Academy Award for Best Picture and Best Cinematography. If you haven't seen it, you ought to check it out. Pretty good flick. And finally, sadly, on July 14, 1957, the famous American comedy team of Bud Abbott and Lou Costello ended their comedy partnership. Luckily for us, their record lives on. Are you the fellow that knows all the players? I certainly. Well, then who's on first? Yes. I mean, the fellow's name. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first baseman. Who? The guy playing first. Who is on first? Now, what are you asking me for? I'm not asking you. I'm telling you who is on first. I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first baseman. Who is on first? Have you got a contract with the first baseman? Absolutely. Who signed the contract? Well, naturally. <laughs> And finally, although it did not take place on this date, it was on July 15th, some time back, that the host of this radio program was born. And I definitely will, again, be turning 39 tomorrow. If it was good enough for the immortal Jack Benny, it's certainly good enough for me. Our quote of the day comes from the immortal George Carlin, who once said, 
Some people see things that are and ask why. Some people dream of things that never were and ask, why not? Some people have to go to work and don't have time for all that crap. Our quip of the day comes from a physicist, Juan Collar of the University of Chicago, who apparently works in conjunction with a Minnesota detector of particles, which is looking for the signatures associated with dark matter. Although reportedly Minnesota has picked up some telltale signals that are preliminary and interesting, they referred to the claims coming from an Italian group called DAMA, which researchers are greeting with skepticism as, quote, pure weapons-grade balonium. Our joke of the day comes from Jay Leno, who notes, A toddler in China fell ten stories out of a window and was caught by a woman walking by. Yeah, the kid was fine. Didn't even miss a day of work. And our joke-slash-quip-slash-Dave Barry of the day is as follows. Comes from Mr. Barry's uh, 2011 calendar. Said Dave Barry, I believe that in general, women are saner than men. For example, if you see people who have paid good money to stand in an outdoor stadium on a freezing December day, wearing nothing on the upper halves of their bodies except paint, those people will be male. Without males, there would be no such sport as professional lawnmower racing. Also, there would be a 100% decline in the annual number of deaths related to efforts to shoot beer cans off heads. In addition, there would be no such words as wedgie and noogie. We have to agree, in certain areas, women are saner than men. Speaking of women, our stat of the day is related to the fair sex. According to Etsy.com, in 1930, the average American woman owned nine outfits. Today, thanks primarily to the lower prices of garments made abroad in low-wage nations, she purchases more than 60 pieces of new clothing every year. On our bonus stat of the day is 75 trillion. That's the number of gallons by which the Earth's underground stores of water are being depleted every year. Geoscientists in the Netherlands reported last September that irrigation and other uses are draining the groundwater supply twice as quickly as in the 1960s. Of course, it's noted that water does not truly disappear, it just winds up in the ocean, where apparently it is making up about one-fourth of the annual three-millimeter rise in sea level. All right, let's do a bit of follow-up. We did report a few months back that uh, for the first time, the U.S. Congress has stepped in to take an animal off the endangered species list. That's as opposed to the usual method of leaving the decision to the fish and wildlife service scientists. Gray wolves are now unprotected in Montana, Idaho, and parts of Oregon, Utah, and Washington. Well, I didn't realize this. But apparently a deal was cut to remove the gray wolf from the endangered species list in several states as part of a government shutdown averting deal. Nice to know that as Congress is working to uh, salvage our budget woes, one of the priorities seems to be shooting more gray wolves. Way to keep your eyes on the ball, Congressman. Oh, and by the way, we almost forgot, this weekend marks the arrival at the asteroid Vesta of the... Dawn spacecraft from NASA. This will mark the first time that uh, we Earth people have gotten a close-up look at one of the larger asteroids. Vesta is, in fact, the second largest asteroid. It's uh, the only one visible to the naked eye. 
and it is widely considered to be a protoplanet. In other words, as the asteroids uh, were coalescing to form a planet, the gravity disruptions of Jupiter evidently stopped the process. So we're going to learn a lot of interesting things really soon, and the pictures should be spectacular. The Dawn spacecraft, by the way, is a twofer. It's going to use its ion engines, which are highly efficient, to leave uh, its orbit around Vesta a year from now and go visit Ceres, the largest asteroid. This is wonderful stuff, and if you don't think so, I don't think you thought it through very clearly. Of course, I do have to admit that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regions of the University of California, who are willing to bet are going to be glued to their computer screens as these photos come in from Vesta. By the way, Vesta is not quite circular. It apparently got uh, busted up in a few collisions in the past, so it's sort of a bit oblong, kind of football-y. But given that it has a very distinct uh, spectral fingerprint, we believe that quite a few of the uh, meteorites we have here on Earth came from Vesta. We expect their value on the open market's going to go sky high soon. This correspondent's a bit saddened by the ever-increasing popularity of meteorites because I do want to own a chunk of the moon and a chunk of Mars, which, which are out there. We do know that some, uh, some meteorites do have their origins in our planetary neighbors, and uh, unfortunately, chunks of Mars are fabulously expensive. But in some other follow-up, we were deriding the possibility of um, flying cars on this program some months back, but... Astonishingly, the concept of flying cars, or, or basically helicopter vehicles, are being taken seriously by the Europeans. A European commission is already worried about how squadrons of non-expert pilots are going to cope with their three-dimensional freedom. We're skeptical this is going to actually come about, but I guess if it does, we better start, start doing some planning. I mean, look how crappy people drive. At any rate, the Europeans have kicked off a 4 million euro research project called MyCopter that aims to ensure that personal aerial vehicles, PAVs, can fly automatically in neat, well-spaced swarms by sensing other vehicles. And eh, we're still skeptical. Some other follow-up. We talked about the lack of genetic diversity in various uh, plants around the world, and apparently... A lack of genetic diversity is why the Tasmanian devils are getting hit pretty hard by a cancer that is communicable. Of course, as we've talked about in this program, not lately, but a long time ago, the fact that sex exists in the world comes about because an increase in genetic diversity is very advantageous to whatever species out there is trying to reproduce. And unfortunately for the Tasmanian devils, there's not a whole lot of genetic diversity to be had. So it was when uh, a tumor disease appeared in 1996. It has rapidly spread through the entire population, causing it to plummet by over 60% over the last 15 years. Some high-powered researchers took a look at the genomes of the Tasmanian devil and discovered that they differed only in about 900,000 sites. By comparison, difference between humans from China and Japan, which you wouldn't think would be terribly genetically dissimilar, differ at over 3 million sites. So this lack of diversity is clearly at the root of their problem. 
New Scientist magazine quotes Catherine Belov of the University of Sydney in Australia saying, devils are essentially immunologic clones, so tumors pass between them without triggering an immune response. You know, in September, we're going to try and do a special show, I think, on, uh, on the importance of genetic diversity. Because frankly, talking to people, it's clear that people just don't get this one. And some other follow-up we're curious to take a look at. We note that Scientific American had a review, or at least a mention uh, this month, of a new book by researchers Terry Hunt and Carl Lipo titled Statues That Walked, Unraveling the Mystery of Easter Island. According to the magazine, recent discoveries suggest that the inhabitants of Easter Island were actually devoted stewards of their island's natural resources, which was very much at odds with the analysis we talked about uh, some years ago by Jared Diamond, which seemed to indicate that humans used and abused the resources on the island, stripping its uh, forest cover down to the bare rock you see today, and in the process, eliminating their ability to even leave the place. We suspect that Jared Diamond is correct about this one, but uh, we'll give it another look. And uh, as far as letters go, we always appreciate hearing from you, dear listener. We do not always have time to read all the emails that we get, but uh, Rob, writing us from Chico, where he hears us on KZFR, had some especially insightful remarks, which I think I will share with you. Rob noted that he really enjoyed the show we did with David Talbot talking about Smedley Butler. Noted that he first learned about Butler by reading the journalist John L. Spivak's autobiography, A Man in His Time. Apparently, Mr. Spivak covered the Dickstein hearings into the Smedley-Butler conspiracy, but uh, couldn't get any of his reports published in mainstream newspapers. He could only get published in The New Masses, a communist paper. David Talbot had mentioned in our talk that uh, listeners were welcome to check out the congressional records for facts in regarding the Smedley-Butler case. Rob noted that Talbot's mostly correct about that, but um, so powerful were the forces behind this attempted coup that parts of the congressional record were redacted, which John Spivak proved in his article, Wall Street's Fascist Conspiracy, Testimony that the Dickstein Committee Suppressed. In that article, he placed side-by-side the printed testimony with the portions removed. Apparently you can Google that uh, that to find out about it. Rob suggested that might make some interesting uh, uh, follow-up for future shows, and indeed it might. But if we get a chance later in this program, we may do a snippet or two of actual audio recordings uh, of Smedley Butler when he took his case to the public. Thanks for your comments, Rob, and thanks to all of you who write us. In fact... A listener who shall remain anonymous sent us this one little bit of comedy that I think I'll take a moment of digression to share with you. This person noted that an administrator in a medical facility in which she worked actually sent the following around, oblivious to the fact that it actually seemed to apply in the case of administration. At any rate, our story is that every day a small aunt arrived at work early and started work immediately. She produced a lot and she was happy. The chief of the operations, a lion, was surprised to see the ant was working without supervision. He thought if the ant can produce so much without supervision, wouldn't she produce even more if she had a supervisor? So he recruited a cockroach who had extensive experience as supervisor and was famous for writing excellent reports. The cockroach's first decision was to set up a clocking in attendance system. He also needed a secretary to help him write and type up his reports, so he recruited a spider who managed the archives and monitored all phone calls. 
The lion was delighted with the cockroach's reports and asked him to produce graphs to describe production rates and to analyze trends so we could use them for presentations at board meetings. So the cockroach had to buy a new computer and a laser printer and recruited a fly to manage the IT department. The ant, who had once been so productive and relaxed, hated this new plethora of paperwork and meetings which used up most of her time. The lion came to the conclusion it was high time to put a person in charge of the department where the ant worked. That position was given to the cicada, whose first decision was to buy a carpet and get an ergonomic chair for his office. The cicada also needed a computer and a personal assistant who he brought from his previous department to help him prepare a work and budget control strategic optimization plan. The department where the ant worked became a sad place where nobody laughed anymore and everybody became upset. About that time, the cicada convinced his boss, the lion, of the absolute necessity to start a climactic study of the environment. Having gone over the charges for running the ants department, the lion soon found out that production was less than before. So he recruited an owl, a prestigious and renowned consultant, to carry out an audit and suggest solutions. The owl spent three months in the department and came away with an enormous report in several volumes that concluded, the department is overstaffed. Naturally, the lion fired the ant because she showed lack of motivation and had developed a negative attitude. And that little fairy story has a lot more truth than it, ladies and gentlemen, uh, as I'm sure many of you are aware, than administrators would like to think. And my goodness, we're almost 20 minutes in. We'd better get to the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to multiple sources, it was a good week a few weeks back for the homesick penguin that found its way to New Zealand. Yes, apparently an emperor penguin appeared on a picturesque beach on New Zealand's North Island, and it was the country's first sighting of the bird in the wild in 44 years. Everyone was charmed, but the bird soon grew ill, and it apparently was mistaking beach sand for the ice it normally consumes for a source of fresh water. After a couple of weeks, the Emperor Penguin grew more lethargic, and authorities realized that if they didn't step in, it might die. It was suffering from both dehydration and heat exhaustion. It's been taken into custody by New Zealand zoo authorities, who will attempt to release it later in the year. Reports indicate that they are not going to give the penguin a lift back to Antarctica. Oh, and by the way, the emperor penguin species is the same one that was in that 2005 documentary, March of the Penguins, which highlighted their ability to survive and breed, despite the Antarctic's brutal winters. And uh, it was a bad week last week for those who would repeal helmet laws, with the news that a man riding bareheaded in one of about 550 motorcycles at an anti-helmet law rally lost control of his cycle, went over the handlebars, struck his head on the pavement, and died from his injuries. According to state troopers in New York, the motorcyclist likely would have survived the accident had he been wearing a helmet. should be noted that New York is one of 20 states that require all motorcycle riders to wear helmets. And lobbying by motorcyclist groups have led to some states to repeal their helmet laws. On the other hand, it was an ugly week last week for the, the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives in the wake of several revelations before Congress. First of all, 
that some Mexican drug cartel figures targeted by the agency in a gun trafficking investigation were in fact paid informants for the both the FBI and DEA. The ATF's acting director, Kenneth Melson, has been under pressure to resign in the wake of the news that uh, a gun trafficking operation known as Fast and Furious uh, resulted in the ATF losing track of the guns involved. Many were later found at the scene of crimes in Mexico, as well as two that were recovered near Nogales, where a U.S. Border Patrol agent was killed. Mexican authorities, of course, have been uh, long complaining that most of the guns that fuel the drug massacres taking place down there were purchased in the United States. Mexico has now lost 38,000 people to drug violence in the past few years. And when I say lost, I mean deaths. In Mexico last week, federal police released a videotaped interrogation when they recently captured founder of the Zetas drug gang, who is wanted in the United States. The, the founder brazenly told them that all the weapons were bought in the United States and that even the American government itself was selling the weapons. And it was revealed last week that the first advertising campaign ever aimed at non-humans is to be directed at uh, an unsuspecting group of capuchin monkeys. Yes, apparently the New York ad agency Proton has collaborated with primatologists at Yale University to test two competing brands of food, at least in how their advertising goes over with the monkeys. And I think it's worth a bit of time to go over some of the details involved. Apparently this team of bright sparks has been wondering um, how the monkeys would respond to advertising, being that they are like humans. So they're creating two food brands, one of which will be backed up by two billboards that will hang outside the monkey enclosure. Said Keith Olwell of Proton, the foods will be novel to them and equally delicious. Noted New Scientist magazine, designing the campaign threw up some special challenges. After all, capuchins do not have a language or culture, and in addition, have short attention spans. Which, frankly, I think makes them rather more like consumers in the U.S., don't you, dear listener? The magazine noted that it had seen the two billboards, but could not show them until the study was over. Noted New Scientist, we can reveal that one shows a graphic shot of a female monkey's genitalia alongside brand A's logo. The other shows the alpha male in the colony, also with brand A. New Scientist notes that the campaign is going to kick off in the coming weeks and that one should watch this space for updates on this venture into monkey consumerism. Here we come, walking down the street. And on that note, we are badly in need of a break. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned. <laughs>